Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Jordan. I'm a pastor here at uh, Willow Park Church, and uh, welcome if you're online. Um, it's a lovely video, and I feel like that that's that. That is our sermon today, is the beauty of is Psalm 23. And maybe we could take uh, 10 minutes per line. We could probably take an hour per line if we really wanted to. This is David's... Oh, is this going to come on? We added this. Oh, there we go. We are in the middle, and they're just kind of nearing close to the end of our David series. And uh, it's been interesting. It's been good to, to kind of live the life of David, see the life of David. The last three weeks, um, Luke and I have talked about um, a little mini-series on Psalms. And, uh, and uh, it's good. And Luke talked about last week just memorization and the idea of memorizing. If there is a verse that you have memorized, it's probably John 3.16, and a very good possibility this is in your repertoire as well. And this is important. Now, will there be something brand new and fresh to hear today? Maybe not, but that's okay. Because when we go into Psalm 23, we are going into David's, one of David's, actually David's greatest hit as a musician. This is his top of the, top of the album, David's greatest hit. And that's good reason why we're doing that, why we see Psalm 23 as the greatest hit, because it can interact with every aspect of our lives. Every aspect, wherever you are at, high or low, you can always go to that psalm. Every day you can pray that psalm. It will never get old. And it will sit and it will have truth. And it will burn in your heart. And it will allow the Lord to speak to you. If we understand the idea of a shepherd, then we can understand the absolute rest of that psalm. If you understand what a shepherd is, if we understand what a shepherd is, then we will be able to understand the rest. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration for a shepherd, but I realized the shepherd is the illustration. Am I right? So, however, do we have any shepherds here? No. Okay. All right. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm supposed to be one, but I, I, that's beside the point. That's not what we're talking about today. But there is shepherds. And I thought to myself, what is a shepherd? I was sitting here last night racking my brain. What is a good illustration for a shepherd? When I was at camp one time, we went... Um, whitewater rafting. And I think to myself, the person in charge of a whitewater rafting trip, the person that is on charge, the, 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 anybody ever been whitewater rafting before? Yeah, a very scary moment in your life. You probably shouldn't have done it. A bad mistake. And, uh, but there's a person that's in charge, and that person that is in charge wants to keep everyone together. And when somebody goes overboard, you can bet their liability that they are going after that person. <laughs> They want to go after everybody, keep everyone close together. That's the idea of a shepherd. And I think if we understand that a shepherd is keeping us close together, the absolute rest of Psalm 23 will really fall into place. Now, if Psalm 23 is our favorite psalm, and it is, it's because Psalm 23 points us to the good shepherd. As I look at this psalm, we will truly understand who a shepherd is. Once we see that, we will see the provision, our understanding of rest and guidance, our dark nights of the soul, our evil, the evil that comes into to steal, to kill and destroy. All of that stuff will be answered when we start to understand who a shepherd is. Now, we're not going to be able to go through and see absolutely everything, every part of every theological outtake on this, but... Remembering that God is the good shepherd, he always loves you, that will inform us greatly. The Lord is my shepherd. Where do we get this idea from? 
John 10, verse 7, if you want to open your Bibles to John verse 10, verse 7 to 11, that is kind of where we're going to be a little bit today. Therefore, you know, when I first started preaching a long time, not that I've done it for very long or very good, you used to always hear Bibles rustle open at that point. I keep on saying it just because I think it's fun to say open your Bibles, but really we have it here and on your phones. It's okay. So John 10, verse 7, therefore, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come to me, oh, sorry, all who have come to me, uh, there we go. Step again. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life, lays down his life. For the sheep. We have a good shepherd, and there is something that Jesus is trying to say at this point. Obviously, it's that he is the good shepherd. And what we have to do is we, like I said, we have to understand who the good shepherd is. He talks about thieves, he talks about imposters who come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Before we get into that, we have to understand one little bit that Jesus is the son of David. To understand this, we understand that the shepherd is a motif of the, mosaic, of the, of the messianic. Understanding that the, the messianic call was a shepherd, the most common title for the Messiah was the son of David, thus indicating that the Messiah would not only come from the line of David, but in some ways be like David, who was a shepherd and who would become the king of Israel. The prophet Micah predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as David was, and that he would lead, feed, and protect the Lord's flock. By the time Jesus came around, the good shepherd was an established metaphor for the Messiah. Therefore, in his teaching, when Jesus speaks of bad shepherds, he's actually speaking from experience in that time. When we look at the who comes to steal and to kill and destroy, who do we think of immediately? We think about the enemy. We think about the devil. We think about the enemy coming to steal and kill and destroy, which is true. But Jesus is talking about some very specific devils or enemies of his time. If I were to throw out a few different examples, if I were to say key words in our recent history, recent 50, 20, 30 years, your mind would immediately go to them. 9-11, we know what happened then. We, our memory goes to where we were the moment that happened. Princess Diana, you would, you would possibly remember what happened to her then. Much more recently, obviously, COVID-19. In a few years, when we say COVID-19, our mind will go to this last few years of the pandemic. Kurt Cobain, you might remember that. The Berlin Wall. World War II, you would remember these things. If I started to give us lists of things that happened in the 1700s, we may remember a little bit, but not quite as much. Some of us would remember a little better than others. But what Jesus is saying is that there is someone that has come to steal and kill and destroy. They are thieves, and they call themselves shepherds. He is speaking about the messiahs of the first century. His audience would have heard these three things, and they would have been triggered to hear what he's talking about. 
Has anyone ever heard of Athongji's the shepherd? Hands up. Good. I was hoping not all of you would put your hands up. Athongji's the shepherd. He was actually called the shepherd during Jesus' time. He was literally the shepherd, and that's how he grew up. And uh, he was a shepherd in Judea, and he built a following by calling himself the Messiah. He built a substantial following, and uh, he was actually crowned, get this, he was crowned the king of the Jews. But everyone called him the shepherd of Israel. He was a revolutionary who waged guerrilla warfare, not only against the Roman soldiers, but the Herodian soldiers. He was known for many people because he was able to kill until he himself fell to the sword and was killed. You may say that Athongis, the shepherd, came to kill. Anyone heard of Judas bar Hezekiah? Well, we think we have because we, we recognize those names in there. Judas bar Hezekiah, um, he was from Sephorus, and Sephorus is new, known as the Jewel of Galilee, only a mere four miles from Nazareth. When Jesus was a teenager, just four miles away, there was someone that was also called the Messiah. Judas bar Hezekiah was a Messiah who supported his movement through the band of highway robbers. They robbed the Romans, kind of like Robin Hood. They robbed the Romans, and they took everything from the Romans, and he was doing well. And then he's like, well, let's move on from the Romans, and let's just go and do a real Robin Hood thing, and they started stealing from the rich Jewish people. And then kind of just kind of all devolved into just stealing from everyone. You might say that Judas bar Hezekiah came to steal. He was also later killed. Didn't work out for him. And then we have Simon of Pereira, who was a Jewish slave. He was a slave of Herod. And he escaped and he amassed a following. And he also claimed to be the Messiah. All three of these guys claimed to be the Messiah right in Jesus' time. He was also crowned the king of the Jews, and he was also killed. He destroyed Herod's temple. Oh, sorry, yeah, Herod's temple in Jericho. You might say that he came to destroy. So there is these three people that came to steal and to kill and destroy, and there's actually a few more examples of this, but we won't go there. But there's this idea that there was messiahs there that were shepherds. And so Jesus needed to stop and he needed to differentiate and say, look, I am the good shepherd. Jesus came because he was the good shepherd. What do good shepherds do? They make their voice known. Jesus was a sh- had a sheep that hear his voice. The thing is, there's obviously people that were hearing the messages of these other three shepherds. And as they listened to their voices, they became accustomed to their voices, and they heard their voices, and they followed their calls up until the point of evil and killing and destruction and destruction of the land. And they heard the wrong voice, and they listened to the wrong voice. The sheep hear the voice of God, but who hears the voice of those who come to steal and to kill and destroy but the goats? The goats hear and listen to a message of the false messiah. Hey, we're back. 
And uh, <laughs> it's all good. I got my phone going off all the time. I, uh, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we had a chorus of, of phone calls, and uh, it's all good. Maybe we'll take this moment to turn our phones off, but don't worry. Um, please come back again. And uh... <laughs> Sorry. Um, so what does a shepherd do? He makes his voice known. See, Jesus didn't come to steal. He came to serve. He didn't come to kill. He came to lay down his life, and he didn't come to destroy, but he came to bring abundant life. Today, we need to listen as sheep to the peaceable voice of God. And if we are not sheep, if we are listening to the voice of destruction, we start to be like the goats. So as I said earlier, if we understand what the shepherd does, we know and understand the rest of the Psalms, of this Psalm in particular. Another thing that a shepherd does is he keeps his flock together. This is probably the most significant part of this, is of what a shepherd does, is he keeps his flock together. If I was going to go through this without a picture of sheep, I would be remiss, and that would be a bad idea. But we have sheep, and the sheep, when I think of a shepherd, I think of sheep, I think of sheep all together, huddled together, walking together, doing everything together, coming together, being here together, welcoming new sheep into the fold, always being together. What the enemy does is the enemy kind of tries to come in and separate the sheep. When you see a group of sheep together, you know that they're safe, you know that they're comfortable, you know that they're with their shepherd. This is how everything works good, is if we are in quality and healthy community. If you see a group of sheep, and we can learn from sheep and a shepherd. If we see a group of sheep and we see kind of a couple of sheep off on the side, they are going to gravitate, they are going to come together. I often think of the idea of, of uh, Canadian geese flying north or south or whenever they want to do it nowadays, um, or whatever way they go. And I always, when I was a kid, I felt so bad because there would be a lovely V flying and then there would be one. Did you ever see that one geese that was just a little bit behind? And he's like, you can't keep up? Come on! Why isn't that leader coming back and bringing him in? And then eventually you would see someone, you know, hopefully, if you got in the good moment and, and I think good of nature, and another one came back and they flew back together and they kind of all met up again. But I was always so sad for that one geese, goose. Gander, I don't know. <laughs> but keeping the flock together is key. If you are on that raft and that raft person doesn't keep that flock of people together, there is going to be something to pay. It's not going to be good. People will be under the boat. They'll be on the rocks. They'll be everywhere, halfway down the river, and it's not going to be good. The key of this verse is, and the shepherd is to keep us together. When we hear his voice, then we will know to stay close together. And there's moments in our lives that we start to separate from that group, and we start to lose hearing of the voice. And that's when the good shepherd goes after the one. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. If you are on that raft, you will be so happy when you rescued that one person that fell off the raft. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing to let any of these little ones go 
and not let any of these ones perish. We live in a world gone a bit wrong. We celebrate celebrity. We celebrate singleness. We celebrate this idea of someone being bigger and better than the rest. I was at a church one time. I will not say which church it was. It was not even here in this country, even close to where we are, thousands of miles away. And there was a VIP section for parking at this church. I thought, hey, we should get a VIP parking for section at our church. No, not at all. But there was a VIP section for parking. This idea that there was a, a special area for one, and we get into this world of celebrity and celebrating singleness where we actually need to celebrate being together and one as one people and one group. And then when the one wanders off, the good shepherd seeks out the lamb, not because it's big and important, but precisely because it's little, lost, and overlooked. Our good shepherd looks for the little, lost, and overlooked. We need to take the cue from the shepherd, the Canadian geese that drops back, and look for the little and the lost, and the overlooked. That's why I teach my kids um, in school. If they're walking around the, 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 the hallways and they see one kid off to the side kind of on their own, that's what we look for. That's what our shepherd is looking for us, helping us look for, is the little and lost and overlooked. If we understand what the shepherd does, the role of the shepherd, we can understand the rest of this very well. Today, let's pay attention to the little lost and overlooked. Because then we get into the, oh, here's the one sheep. <laughs> I'm a little sad. It's winter outside, not going well. He's cute. I lack nothing. The God of love my shepherd is, and he that doth feed me. While he is mine and I am his, what can I want or need? George Herbert. If we live in our lives with our shepherd and we stay close together with our shepherd, he knows the lay of the land. Dallas Willard says, living in a world without lack involves recognizing the idea system that govern the present age and its respective cultures. Living in a world without lack involves recognizing the idea systems that govern this present age and their respective cultures, as well as those that constitute life away from God, and replacing them with the idea and the systems that embody those taught by Jesus Christ. There is a world out there that is teaching us to be reliant on the world. And what Jesus says, he wants us to call us back, replace the idea that the world is giving us with the idea and understanding that we will lack nothing when we are embodied by Jesus Christ. We will lack nothing when we are embodied with the Holy Spirit, when we spend time in our community, when we spend time with our God, when we spend time with the Holy Spirit living in us, we will lack nothing. This age is an age that is temporary and we are going to come into a new kingdom. And as you accept Christ into your life, you begin life in a new journey, in a new kingdom with him. 
And as we do that, we start, to, we start on our adventure of eternity now, living without lack because we have the Holy Spirit living within us now. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added. Sometimes it seems simplistic when, when the bills are mounting up and when, the, when, when life is getting difficult. It seems far too simplistic to just say, seek first his kingdom and everything else will be added to it. But that is the promise that is throughout the Bible, to seek first his kingdom and just rest in his goodness. Rest in his goodness because then the Holy Spirit walks with you. And he walks and he, and he wanders the roads with you and he, he goes in and out of everything as we've been thinking so much about the Ukraine. My prayer constantly is that the Holy Spirit would walk the streets, hover around, meeting people in their darkest time. We go through our darkest time. This psalm is for our darkest time. It's for our brightest time. As the Holy Spirit walks and moves and lives in our heart, you will lack nothing because you will have the fullness and the goodness of God. The gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed, manifested, and taught was about more than his death for the forgiveness of our sins, and important, as important as that is. It was about the kingdom of God, God's immediate availability, his with usness that makes a life without lack possible. The kingdom of God's, God, God's immediate availability in your life now is what gives us a life without lack. Youngest to oldest, everywhere we are in this world, anywhere we are in this world, God will be there with you if you invite him in. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. What kind of sheep lies down in a green pasture? A sheep that has eaten its fill. If a sheep is in a green pasture and she's not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. There is an abundance of God's spirit. There's abundance of who he is to allow us to lie down and rest with him. We don't need to panic. We don't need to always be looking for more and more and more. We can just be satisfied with him. A sheep that is led beside still waters is a sheep that is not thirsty. Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. But the water that I shall give them will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If you see a sheep beside still water, that means that sheep is not needing to drink because it is full, it is refreshed, it is, it is happy, it is satisfied. Not constantly looking, not constantly worried. As we stay together with the shepherd, the shepherd will lead us to those beautiful, quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. The broken depths of my soul are healed and reintegrated in a life of union with God, the eternal kind of life. As, we with, as we're with our shepherd, he will bring us our soul being healed and reignited in the life of God. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. There's a verse there that we're going to skip. 
guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. The effect of the restoration of my soul is that I walk in paths of righteousness on his behalf as a natural expression of my renewed inner nature. As I walk these paths, my trust in the shepherd runs so deep that I can declare, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. As we walk with Jesus on the paths the shepherd gives to us, Think about going through the mountainside. Think about going through the the difficult terrain. The shepherd knows if you stick to the paths that he's given you, that he's directing us in, the community that he's given to us, when evil comes, we will fear no evil. This next one is a little bit longer, and then I will fly through the rest, I promise. But even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When we think about this verse, we think about the good shepherd, we think about lack, and then we think about evil. And how do we go through evil? That's what I think about anyways. And I've been reading this book. It's a rather difficult book. I think the first word I had to look up ten times to figure it out. But it's called... Raging with Compassion, the Pastoral Response to the Problem of Evil. A life without lack is is one that carries no fear of evil. When we fear evil, it is because of lack. I had a story about when I was a kid and I feared a bit of evil because a sermon talked about a whole bunch of evil and it it was fine. But then I remember last night I was here on my own and usually churches are fine to be in. Hey, everybody likes being on their own in a big church. And I was sitting here kind of filling in the last few things and I heard a door close over here. I was like, well, interesting. I had checked if everyone was here or not here and everyone was gone. I heard this door close. I was so certain that I heard that door close that I was like looking out this window here. Where's that person gonna walk? Where's that person gonna walk? They never walked by. I'm like, ugh. I'm like, that's fine. And then, like, literally the amount of time that it would take to walk around this building, this door closed over here. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Whew. I had this moment. Absolutely ridiculous. But I had this silly little fear that something was, nothing was, and then I actually looked around the building to make sure no one was there and it was all good. That wasn't the most fun either. But when you are in this moment of fearing, when you are by yourself, that is when it's the most scary. I got to be honest with you. Right now, if that door were to close and that door were to close, we'd all just enjoy ourselves and be like, whatever. But when you're on your own, when you're separate from your community, that's when evil can get you. That's when that fear of evil and pain can really start to take hold. There's this word called theodicy, and theodicy is an attempt to reconcile the power and the goodness attributed to God with the presence of evil in the human experience. How do we weigh a good God and evil at the same time? How do those two work? The question that theodicy is asking about evil is this. Why does an all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil and suffering? That may appear to be the appropriate question. We live in an age of science and understanding and reasoning. Asking questions and solving problems is part of our DNA. I had to figure that out last night. Didn't figure it out in the end. 
But you think everything that we have, we should be able to have an equation for. Everything must be explained. Framed within our cultural experience, answering questions about the goodness and love of God in the face of evil and suffering appears to be logical and beneficial. However, as we have begun to see, the apparent benefits of such questioning may be deceptive. Crying out in pain is what we as humans unfortunately must do. But questioning God's love, that is not part of the equation. There is a pain that we walk through that is synonymous throughout creation. We all walk through pain. But we don't have to ask the question, does God love us? The early church did not seem to ask the question about the existence of evil and suffering in the way that we now ask the questions. Our culture places great faith in the idea that, given enough intellectual reasoning and scientific knowledge, all problems can be solved. The question that theodicy tries to answer is in fact the wrong question to ask about the problem with evil. Here we go. For the early Christians, suffering and evil did not have to be explained. Rather, was required, rather, what was required was a means to go on, even if evil could not be explained. Let me say, even if pain, even if suffering, even if hardships cannot be explained. Indeed, it was crucial that such evil not be explained. That is, it was important not to have to provide a theoretical account of why such evil and pain and suffering happened. The necessity to explain undercuts the necessity of community to be capable of absorbing suffering. There's a necessity for us to explain away pain and suffering and blame someone for it, God or us, does away with what we should be doing and absorbing it as community. Historically speaking, Christians have not had to have a solution. Rather, they have had a community of care that made it possible to absorb that. The community's response to loss and suffering is not questioning God's goodness, love, and power, but rather developing faithful forms of dealing with the impact of loss and ushering in the healing goodness of the Spirit of God. We have this idea and this obsession of trying to find out who is to blame. Are we to blame? Is it us? Is it our problem? Or is God to blame with evil and suffering and pain? What the good shepherd does is if, you can wrap, if we can wrap our hearts around the idea that a shepherd is keeping us together and defending us from the attacks of the evil one, we don't need to worry. All we need to do is stay together. So when pain comes into your life, when pain and loss, hurt come into who you are, you stick close because the enemy wants you to be separated. The enemy wants that sheep to scatter. The enemy wants the sheep to go here or there and blame each other or blame the shepherd. But what this is saying is that we need to stop and we need to come together as a community and love each other and absorb evil and pain and suffering together. And then when we see sheep on the other side, when we see sheep wandering off and they are on their own, we bring them back into the fold because this is where we can absorb with our good shepherd. Because this psalm never says that that evil is not going to come and try to get at us. But it says we have a good shepherd that keeps us together. 
We need to stick together. A flock together and close together is what we need. The enemy wants to do two things, blame God and blame ourselves. But the enemy is is to blame. Let's not forget that. We blame ourselves for things that happen. The enemy gets into our minds and our hearts and says, oh, it's my fault, I did this, I did that. Or you did this, you did that. Or God, you did this, you did that. But as we stick close together, you'll see tears being cried in church, and that is a beautiful place for tears because we can come together and we can love and care. So like I said, if we understand the goodness of the shepherd, we can understand the rest of our world because God loves us. Because we walk together and he is rod and his staff, they comfort me. He walks with us and there's comfort with the good shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. As he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, what does that mean? That means forgiveness comes, love comes. We love our enemies, we forgive our enemies, we care for our enemies, and we come together and we eat together. Since I love my enemies, I would not feast upon the delicious meal in their presence and let them stand by hungry. The abundance of God's provision and safety in my life is so great that I would invite them to enjoy what God has prepared for me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I know it's been a longer service, but I just really want to get the idea that if we trust our shepherd and we trust our community and we trust the one who cares for us to stay together, to not let division come, to not let us squibble and squabble or blame our shepherd, we can deal with so much more. We have lovely groups in this church, grief share and divorce care, and what happens is there's a group that comes together and cares together and mourns together and laughs together and loves together. We as a church, South 33, a Lake Country, the greater church in Kelowna, the greater church in this world need to love and mourn together because you anoint my head with oil and our cup will not just be full but it will be overflowing with God's good spirit with God's goodness with his care and his love Jesus contrasted his mission with the bad shepherds and the false messiahs he didn't come to steal He came to serve. He didn't come to kill. He came to lay down his life. He didn't come to destroy. He came to give you and me and our community abundant life. So we can walk through the darkest valleys and not fear the evil, not fear the unknown, because we walk together hand in hand, not divided, but unified, loving each other. The sheep hear his voice. I'm going to finish with a reading of 
when Jesus reinstates Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, son of Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you. There's no doubt where you want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The church, us, is called to feed the sheep, not answer all the questions. Trust God's goodness and love each other with open arms and open hearts.